Hello and welcome to the Digital Agenda Podcast. I'm your host, Louise Stokes, and in this new series, we will be exploring issues relating to technology in the modern world. We will hear from industry experts with recordings from this year's Digital Agenda Power and Responsibility Summit. The insightful and thought-provoking discussions covered such diverse topics as data bias, the AI revolution, and profit for purpose. Welcome to Episode 5, The World of Data. This episode, we hear from writer, broadcaster, and feminist campaigner, Caroline Criado Perez, OBE. And she's joined by Catherine Mayer, Executive Director of Data Future and co-founder and president of the Women's Equality Party. Catherine and Caroline discuss bias, confidence, challenges and opportunities within the world of data, the Digital Agenda Power and Responsibility Summit. Over to the stage where Catherine is introducing the session with Caroline. One of the reasons we have so much to talk about is that Caroline and I have been pursuing quite um, parallel and then also intersecting paths um, in advocacy. Um, so both of us have used writing as a way to uh, get things across, number crunching, addressing data gaps, um, and advocacy around gender equality. Um, what we thought we would do is actually start this conversation around the campaigning work um, and then go and look in more detail at Caroline's fantastic book, Invisible Women. Can I just check here how many people in the room already have and have read that book? Okay, so if you came here to sell books... Not so great. Well, you can always buy another copy for your Christmas. friends. Christmas yes. is coming. How Christmas many? for your dad. You know, dads love data. Yeah. <laughs> and also it's really, this is, you know, one of the things that we always find difficult is to make sure that men engage with this topic as fully as women. So that is one of the gaps. Yeah, that you get them address. with the data. Yeah. Reel them in with the data and then you know, suddenly they discover they're reading feminism and they're like, what the fuck? <laughs> How did this happen? <laughs> this is outrageous. I've found, I mean, I don't know if you've found that that's a helpful tool, but I've definitely found that's a good way of conning men into becoming feminists. I, I don't, I, I would take exception to conning because obviously I think men should be feminists because it's good for them too. But yes, um, it's also incredibly important in TV studios where um, the whole kind of discourse is based around data and people throwing numbers at each other to sound like they know what they're talking mm. about. So when I first started the Women's Equality Party, one of the things that people kept saying is, well, it's not necessary. There are so many female leaders around. So I went away and I number crunched exactly how many female leaders there were in every full and partial democracy in the world, the elected presidents and prime ministers. And I worked out that it was 8%. So that whenever, whenever anybody yeah, said that- Yeah, but Catherine, women are everywhere now. Yeah, yeah. This was so literally said to me by, um, um, a man, uh, when I ran the, the Women on Banknotes campaign, um, so for anyone who doesn't know about that, the Bank of England announced they were removing the only female historical figure from the back of banknotes, and I um, said, no, you're not. And, uh, and so they didn't. 
great story. Um, but when I was running the campaign, this guy got in touch with me to say, but women are everywhere now. You know, really quite outraged by the fact that women are everywhere now. And, um, and, and, but it's really fascinating, I think, because he really clearly felt that this was the case, just as I'm sure the people who were saying to you, yeah. oh, but female leaders are everywhere now, felt that that was the case. And I think it's really interesting to ask, why is there this misperception? You know, you went away and found out that it was 8%. When we're thinking about the banknotes, you know, clearly women weren't everywhere. They were about to be nowhere. The, qu um, the queen was, was the thing that I also saw being argued with you. Right. The queen is on all the banknotes. Yes. All, all of us should aspire to become the queen. Um, but, but, but I find it really interesting, this way that a, a sort of small uptick in female representation can be taken to, to seem as if women are taking over rather than representing 8% instead of 4%, you know, um, which I would argue is as a result of a cultural gender data gap that we're so used to seeing the world as about 80% male in the way that it's represented to us that because we know that the world is 50-50, we sort of see... 80% is about 50-50, and yeah. of course it isn't. I agree, and we are of course accidentally going straight to invisible women because there's a there's a statistic that both you and I quoted in in our in our books. I I, I wrote one um, far less successful, by the way, if you're interested in data, um, than Caroline's called Attack of the 50-Foot Women. Um, but we both quoted that statistic about um, Hollywood movies, the just what the crowds that you see milling around. So, I mean, what would you think, if, if it's a crowd scene, what would you expect to see in a crowd in, in terms of gender split? Yeah, and Caroline, would you like to tell them what it is? Do you remember? It's 17%. Yeah. 17% women in, in, and this is where big data is, by the way, very helpful because that's a big data analysis that went through movie after movie after movie and worked out what those crowd scenes actually looked like. But I mean, it's, it's, it's so interesting yeah. that, that that happened. How did that happen? It's mad. Women really are 50% of the population. And something like a crowd scene, why are you representing that? As, as men. I actually, I just um, went to New, Zeal New Zealand, what the fuck? I went to Australia, I'm sorry. I've been invited to New Zealand in my defense. It's not that I, I can't tell the difference between Australia and New Zealand. Um, anyway, I was going to Australia. And um, so I had a lot of films to watch and I thought I'm gonna watch um, The Day After Tomorrow. That seems like a good idea of a film to watch while however many feet up in the air, turns out it's not a good idea of a film to watch because there's a really terrifying scene with turbulence, um, which I didn't enjoy. But anyway, what actually struck me about this film, it was the second time I watched it, was how I hadn't noticed the first time that the first sort of 10 minutes or so, the first six scenes, it's all men. So the first scene is these three scientists in some kind of Arctic region all men. Then the main scientist goes to speak to world leaders about how, you know, climate change is going to kill us. And three world leaders speak to him. They're all men. Um, I mean, I suppose that's not necessarily inaccurate. But nevertheless, you know, in the crowd scene there, 
there's no women. There's another scientist who turns up. He's also a man. He's a jolly sort of English eccentric type, invites him for a cup of tea. Um, but he is also a man. And uh, then you go and meet this eccentric man's colleagues who are also men. Um, and then you have a scene in, uh, in a street where there's a guy drinking coffee. By guy, I mean man. Um, and there is a, uh, a homeless person who is also a man. There is a police officer who is also a man. And finally, a woman appears, except she doesn't appear. She's a disembodied voice on the phone who is the wife of the man drinking coffee. <laughs> and she is calling him, presumably to say, where the hell are you? Why haven't you come home to take the bins out? Um, so, because that's what women what do, do in- boy job. In, exactly, that's what women do in films. But I just found, what I found really interesting was that, you know, the first time around when I watched this, I can't remember when it came out, do you remember? Sort of like 2012 or something. I just hadn't noticed. Yeah. That's how used we are to the world being, you know, and it's totally unnatural. Like, that's not what you would see walking around the world. You see women as much as men. But in films, we just don't notice that we're representing the world as so heavily male-dominated. And I find it absolutely fascinating how we don't notice that this is happening. Yeah, well, and that is why, I mean, one of the reasons I think your book, but your other campaigning is so important, is it's that thing of giving people the jolt because once you have seen, then you can't unsee. Mm. I mean, that it does actually, I will warn you, that the more you see, the more it destroys your enjoyment of popular culture. <laughs> um, well, yeah. It, you, 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 I mean, just listen to Caroline's description of trying to relax and watch a film on a plane. It doesn't right. happen anymore. You just sit there getting angry. I mean, eventually I did sort of just enjoy, you know, a barge floating through New York as the water had taken it over. That was still fun to watch. But, yeah, it does. It, 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 it was like when I discovered My Fair Lady has a stalker in it, and I was just like, this is not fun anymore. I thought this was a romantic, really fun, um, poppy sort of... Um, what the hell's the word? Musical. Yeah. Um, I know, revisiting things that you haven't seen or read for years is always quite shocking once you get to that point. But, of course, what our aim is, our joint aim, is for all of you to get to that point and not be able to go back to it. So we're not trying to destroy popular culture for you, but we are yes, trying to... Yes. <laughs> we're trying to... No, but it would also change popular culture because... Mm. Um, I mean, again, those statistics around movie making, one of the reasons you said, how did it happen? If you look at the statistics on who's actually making movies, there are vanishingly small numbers of women in a lot of the technical roles in movies. Um, and so, you know, again, that's where what you've done has been so successful. And I said we'd talk about campaigning. I mean, Caroline mentioned her banknotes campaign. If you look in your wallets, um, some of you, uh, at least if you are carrying folding, will have Jane Austen, uh, which is down to Caroline, which is an amazing achievement. Um, I'm afraid that the first interaction I had with Caroline was because I supported the banknotes campaign on Twitter. I think it was in 2013. And um, as a, a direct result of that, got my first ever Twitter death threat. Sadly, not the last one, but was, um, was in a group of women where we all got death threats and were told to move out of our houses just for supporting that campaign. Um, Caroline then went on, of course, to do this amazing thing of looking, again, a data approach to public statuary. Um, what was it that you found? What was the statistic? Um, I think it was 
2.7% of statues, um, so I counted, I think it was 925 statues which were listed in the public sculptures and monuments database. And you couldn't, um, you couldn't search by gender. So I had to count them all by hand, which was in some ways not a very fun weekend. Um, but actually I'm quite glad that they hadn't you know, done it for me, um, because it meant that I discovered lots of very interesting things. So first of all, the 2.7% the um, was of uh, female uh, historical figures, so women who had actually existed, um, but also weren't royal. And specifically, the not royal bit is because Queen Victoria totally skews the data, um, because she just put up loads of statues to herself. So many, in fact, that she raises the number of female statues by like quite a few percentage points. I think it's up to 7% if you include Queen Victoria. Um, so obviously still not that much, but that's quite a lot of statues of one woman. You kind of have to admire her in a way. You know, that's, <laughs> that's, that's quite impressive. Another one of my uh, favorite stats that I wouldn't have, have come across had I not had to count by hand was that there were more statues of men called John than there were of um, women, who, statues of women who'd actually existed. Um, you were more likely to, for women who did have statues, um, uh, it was more things like um, the Virgin Mary or sort of um, uh, mythical figures, so sort of muses, things like um, one of my favorite statues that I came across. I'm not sure I'd necessarily say favorite. My, my favorite to laugh at um, is a statue of, I think she's called Euphrates, who's the muse of music. And there's this amazing statue, which if you haven't seen, I thoroughly recommend you go check it out. It's um, in Victoria Embankment Gardens. And it's this bust of uh, Sullivan from Gilbert and Sullivan, um, which in itself is kind of funny because, you know, men get to be sort of brains and he's literally just a head, you know, just his amazing, wonderful brain up on a plinth. And then you have Euphrates, who's half naked, um, have this, has this sort of artfully draped, um, I don't know what it is, drape <laughs> on her, who's just sort of weeping at, at, at Sullivan, you know, no longer being with us. And basically that sums up how men and women are represented in statues. Men are represented as, as sort of impressive people from the past who used their minds, and women are represented as decorative bodies, sometimes decorative bodies who were just there to sort of show how much they and their decorative body loved the man that we are celebrating. And there was also, of course, in Parliament Square, not a woman represented, yeah. not even, I think, Queen Victoria. No, she just, was just, not, and she didn't manage to get in there. Just some, Queen some quite long forgotten um, politicians as well as the mm. more famous ones. Yeah. So you, so you started another campaign. I did, very reluctantly, um, because, well, I mean, you know, campaigning's a pain in the ass. <laughs> it's just, it's really rubbish. Um, and you don't get paid for it. Um, apart from in death threats. So um, you don't- We could monetize those. Oh you? my God, <laughs> I would retire. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's, it's not a sort of fun thing to do. And I only campaign on something if I just can't get it out of my head, which is basically what happened here. I went for a run and it took me through Parliament's, Parliament Square. And for the first time, I noticed that all the statues in there were of men. 
And I thought, well, I'll send a tweet and hopefully someone else will run the campaign for me. It's very selfish of you really not to have picked up on that and Listen, run the campaign for me. I, I accidentally <laughs> founded an entire political party from a tweet. <laughs> it's literally because I said somebody should start a women's equality party um, that we've got one. That is the fatal mistake. <laughs> um, yeah, so I carried on running and, and I realised as I was um, circling Green Park that I was composing the campaign text in my head. So I realised at that point I'm going to have to run this campaign. And as a result, we've ended up with the first statue of a woman and the first statue by a woman in Parliament Square, uh, Millicent Fawcett, done by Gillian Waring, which is very cool. It is really cool. Again, if you haven't seen this, it's, it's such a great achievement. And... Um, there are two things. One is I had a very nice conversation with someone who's here um, in the bathroom earlier because that's where all the best conversations are. And she asked me to ask you, do you think you're making a difference? And I have to say, look in your wallet and look in Parliament Square to answer that question. But do you feel like you're making a difference? Because it is difficult. There is, you know, we joke about the, the this horrible tide of of hatred that we get for campaigning but it is quite sometimes quite hard to feel like you're making a difference when the world is also being mm. running backwards in so many different respects well um i feel that i am making a difference in that i know that people have changed their minds as a result of reading the book or listening to something that i've said um, I'm even actually managing to change my brother's mind, which is very, very impressive because he is not a feminist. And recently he, um, I mean, he was a bit drunk at the time, but, but he did sort of say that he thought I might actually have a point about, about all this and then, then proceeded to uh, pretend it had never happened. Um, so I'm making a difference definitely to my brother. Um, but also, you know, it's been really great um, hearing from both men and women about how they have changed the way that they approach um, research, data, building design, all sorts of things as a result of reading the book. So one guy got in touch with me. This is one of my favorite um, responses to the book is that he went back and readed 260 pages of code because after having read the book, he suddenly realized, oh my God, the clinical data sets that I get sent use white men as the reference point and female and African-American as an effect. And the thing that was particularly interesting about that as well was he pointed out that actually data tends to get presented in alphabetical order. So technically, you know, African-American female would be the default reference point. So why isn't it? Well, basically, because we're so used to presenting white men as the reference point that people are ordering it in that way. And and the particularly interesting thing about that is that it's just not credible that there are a bunch of white male supremacists going around and deliberately reordering data in clinical data sets, you know, in order to keep white men as the reference point. It is something that we are just so used to doing that we don't even notice. And again, he hadn't noticed, but he now does notice. And he noticed so much and cares so much. And what a great guy, Six, 260 pages of code. That sounds like a lot of code to me. Anyway, I was very impressed by that. Um, and and the, the thing as well is, I, I don't know if this particular clinical data set was about Alzheimer's, but I noticed in his Twitter bio that he does research Alzheimer's. And of course, that is a disease that affects women more than men. So that's another reason that perhaps he might want to have women as a reference point in that particular clinical data set. Um, and you know, that is just one relatively minor change. But the thing that is important to sort of realize about making a difference is that 
one person isn't ever going to change the world on their own. They never have and they never will, whatever that amazing quote is about a small group of concerted citizens. But even that is a small group of concerted citizens. Actually, change happens because hundreds and thousands of people start making little changes. You know, when you're talking about a system that is as entirely built into the fabric of our society, you know, right down to how we are coding our clinical data sets, right down to the British standards for how we design buildings, right down to how we segregate data in transport planning. Um, it's going to have to be lots of people making lots of small changes, lots of small adjustments, having lots of small realizations about, oh, I didn't realize that this was a thing that I was doing. This was a thing that happened in my industry. So am I making a difference? No, I'm not personally going and making all those things happen, but I hope that what I'm talking about is making lots of other people go around and make a difference. And that's ultimately, I think, how you can measure success. I think, I think that's a great answer. And I think um, it's very interesting because one of the things that, again, another, another point of uh, commonality that we have is around this idea that in order to fix things, you have to make them visible. So we have to, for people to be able to see what those gaps are, to see, to see what the world really is like in order to fix it. But that's only the start of it. It doesn't actually make people necessarily want to fix it at all. There are some people who are very happy to see, yes, that, that is not just, but we'll leave it like that, and who would not necessarily think that it benefited them to make that change. So part of advocacy is, of course, finding the way not just to show what's invisible, but then to move people in order to, to make that change. Yes, but I do think that most people, if they're faced with a very serious injustice, would think that they wanted to change it. You know, people do often ask me, like, how do I get people to understand what we're talking about? And obviously I say, well, buy my book. It's all in there. This is one of the many reasons this book is more successful. <laughs> um, but, but actually, you know, I actually did... The reason I wrote this book was that I wanted to explain injustice to people who didn't necessarily understand it. And actually, data is a brilliant way of doing that because it is just about unarguable facts. Um, and, and I think when a lot of people talk um, to... like, Well, I think when a lot of women talk to men that care about them about how they experience the world. And you can sometimes be talking about what sort of feel like subjective judgments and emotions, and that can be quite hard to explain. You know, explain to someone how you know that that comment was sexist, how you know that the man who spoke to you in that way was trying to belittle you, how you know that that wasn't just an innocent comment, you know, and the way that all these things add up and shape the way you move around the world, the way you move around your workplace, the way you move around the dark city, right? I think it's quite hard to explain all of that because we're so used to it. It's actually hard to articulate it sometimes even. Um, we're used to it and men don't see it. Exactly. But everyone can understand very easily a statistic like women are 17% more likely to die if they're in a car crash because cars have been designed around the 50th percentile male. Um, people can very easily understand women are 50% more likely to be misdiagnosed if they have a heart attack because the way that we have researched 
bodies <laughs> in all sorts of um, medical research has been on male bodies. And so we know more about male symptoms. We know more about how the male heart mechanically functions. Um, diagnostic tests are developed around the male body. You know, this is something that is A, very easily understood and B, incredibly shocking. And, and I often think about, or I have recently been thinking about this Andrea Dworkin quotation that someone told me as a way of explaining why um, women don't necessarily call themselves feminists. And it was, um, I can't remember the exact wording, but it was something along the lines of, women are the only oppressed group who share a bed with their oppressor. And of course, you know, that's true. We are very intertwined, men and women, um, and women care about men. They have not only male partners, they have brothers and sons and fathers. Um, but actually, I think you can turn that on its head and say, but that means that men are intertwined with women too. And they have daughters and partners and mothers and grandmothers and sisters. And so I don't, you know, I don't accept that. I'm not, I know you're not specifically saying this, but I, you know, I think men do care that their mum, if she is in a car crash at the same time as them, that she's 17% more likely to die. You know, no one wants no, no. that. And, so and I'm not. I'm saying the question is: is what the what's the mechanism for getting oh, people data. Both, to, both to understand and then to care? Well, so one of the good things about being here, of course, is that we're in a room full of people who are working in a tech sector, which is so vitally important to the future. Is building yes. the future. Yes, the tech sector um, has a lot of problems. Um, <laughs> Yes, <laughs> we'll get to that in just a But also, I mean, when I was talking before about death threats, I mean, one of the other things is um, without social media, we wouldn't have been able to do any of the stuff we're doing. So we live both sides of the, of the technological change. But you also talked about making change in terms of what we can do as, as individuals and how many people it takes to make change. We're also living through this period of extraordinary change and disruption through technology. But to go back to an example of um, where change, where the, the stats are all there, but the change doesn't necessarily get made, and it's one I look at a lot, is with business. All the statistics that are out there that are incredibly mm. well known, um, Jacqueline quoted one earlier about how much more profitable com companies are if there's a woman on the board the enlightened self-interest of knowing that diversity of all kinds is something that makes better organisations. People know it, but they don't necessarily do enough to make mm. that change. So for me, the question is always, how can we speed up that impact? Is data still your answer? Yeah, data is still my answer. And I, and I think that it's, it, it's because data enables shifts in perspective. Right. Um, and there's, you know, one, basically I think the shift in perspective that is particularly needed when it comes to business and the workplace is that we for so long have been enthralled to this idea of the genius individual. Um, and we forget that actually what we're trying to do is create really effective teams. And when you start thinking about it in that way, it becomes much easier to see how you would achieve diversity. Because when you're looking at it in sort of isolation, who is the best person for this job? Who is the most amazing person? Um, well, for a start, you're much more likely to get hung up on, you know, is this a young buck like me? Does he remind me of 
me at, at his age, um, you're much more likely to start thinking about it in, the, in, in a perspective of, well, what are the gaps actually that we're trying to fill here? What are the gaps in knowledge? What are the gaps in perspective? Um, what makes our team the strongest? I actually think that that is one of the biggest shifts in perspective that would make a difference to diversity at the top is if we started thinking like that. When I was in Australia, um, I, was, I was at a women in mining conference, which was really amazing. Like it was just so interesting hearing from all these um, incredible female engineers and the sort of challenges that they faced being in this incredibly male dominated environment from, you know, a lot of it was sort of, you know, right up my street all this stuff about things that hadn't been designed for their body that were wrong for their hands and wrong for their backs and all that kind of thing um but there was this woman talking about leadership and she was saying a very similar thing about how in america the sort of model of leadership has been this search for charisma and confidence and that this is the best person to lead the company we want this great charismatic leader but actually she she, she, she quoted the study that looked at the confidence and competence overlap, and it was 0.1%. <laughs> um, and she actually pointed to the way um, leadership is um, thought about in Asia, which I didn't know about and I found really fascinating. It seems to me a much better model, which is that it is much more looking at the team and what is best for the whole, which seems to me a natural thing for business to want to do because businesses aren't about one person they are about teams you do need to have a good team so you know i think sort of looking at data in that way should help shift the perspective it, sh it should but it, it's for me it's always very interesting i i do think that data tells a lot of stories about businesses and when i look at a business that doesn't have diversity in it I look at that as an absence of talent that they should otherwise have. Mm. You know, I look. At, I would absolutely see that as a as a management deficiency, as well as being a reflection of wider yeah. society. But that I mean, expects it's eighty percent right. But it's just stupid. I mean, to stick with the tech sector, you know, there's that really infamous example of the Apple um, comprehensive health tracker app, which would allow you, when it was released in 2014, to track your molybdenum. Do you know what that is? No. Nope. No, I don't know what that is. Does it does anyone here actually know what that is? It's, yeah, but but like what does it do for you? Where do you get it from? Do you want more of it or less of it? No idea. Right. <laughs> um similarly copper, which I, I do know what copper is, but I don't know how I'm getting it. I don't know. Am I eating it? Am I are we eat should we be eating more copper? I don't know. Um but you couldn't track your period. You know, and and women want to track their periods. They want to know when they should wear white trousers. They want to know when they should start, you know, knocking back the ibuprofen. And and I just don't believe that a group that had had enough women in it would have released a comprehensive yeah. health tracker app that didn't have a period tracker. And that's just a stupid business decision that is clearly a result of a gap in knowledge that clearly is a result of a lack of diversity. Which goes all the way through from school, um, from and from that popular culture that we were talking about before, and what people see role modelled right the way through, then into recruitment and everything else, and reflects through. But my that was again my point is like how we speed up this process. But I think, but I think you know I shouldn't be asking you that because you bloody turbocharged it. So. <laughs> um, when um, you were doing the book. Um, were there were there things that 
that really, really surprised you? Or was it more in your case that you were finding out stuff that you kind of knew and you were creating, you were setting it out in ways that would... No, I mean, it, it was all very shocking. Right. Um, but you were literally there every day going, oh my bloody God, I can't believe that. Yeah, well, because, you know, although I knew that this was an issue, to discover quite how awful it is, you know, and how serious it is. Endemic, systemic. Yeah, action. and particularly when you're looking at researchers, you know, medical researchers, sports science researchers, these are people who understand the importance of collecting accurate data. And, and we're talking life and death in these kinds of data gaps. Um, and so finding it there, and in particular, I think, I think the thing that really shocked me was the excuses. Because it's one thing for a company like Apple to just be incredibly stupid and forget that periods happen. It's another thing for a medical researcher who knows that you know, sex differences can have serious impacts for how medication is metabolized um, to say, oh, well, women are too complicated to measure, so we just won't bother. Um, and, and, and it's just, it happens a lot. And, and that was, I think that was the thing really that shocked me the most was, was finding scientists not caring about accurate data. Because it's just like literally in their job description. Um, so yeah, that, that, I'm still very angry about that. <laughs> <laughs> the, that the, the male default, I think is one again in this room, and men and women in this room will be incredibly aware of this uh, if you examine yourselves, but whether it's something that you've actually noticed. I mean, both Caroline and I appear in lists of female authors. What you find is that there are lists of authors and then female authors. Mm. Um, I saw one you tweeted the other day, which was a body, um, a, a um, anatomy chart. Right. One of them was a male anatomy and it was just labeled the body. And then there was one of a female body and it was labeled the female body. <laughs> And th this is literally everywhere. It really is. It's incredible. I get sent stuff like this all the time now, yeah. as you can imagine. People just spotting it everywhere. And it's just, you know, you've got mountain socks, women's mountain socks. What the hell is that about? You know, <laughs> it's so weird. But it really does well, exist everywhere. Well, sometimes it's about charging us more as well for making things pink. But we'll go there. Well, we have enough well actually, my favorite one of those was because it, it had everything. It was um, laxatives. <laughs> and you had laxatives, the standard laxatives, and then you had lady laxatives, which are exactly the same ingredients, a pink box, and literally three times the price. I mean, <laughs> it was just staggering. Women. And they were right next to each other as well. So it wasn't even like they were trying to sort of bamboozle you and hide it. It was just like, the ladies are going to be drawn to the pink. <laughs> and that's that's how we're going to get the markup. The slogan you're looking for is "women who gives a shit." <laughs> <laughs> um, well, we are running low on time, um, so what I wanted to do is ask if you had, you know, messages. You know, as I say, everyone here involved in um, in some way in trying to make a better world. We hope. But what would what's your kind of message or thing that you want people to go and do because it feels pretty urgent to me that we mm. keep making change at speed at this point in time so uh there's three things 
Okay. Can I do three? You can do three. Okay. And so Poppy wants to add one as well. She says woof. Um, so three things. The first thing is that um, equality doesn't mean treating women like men. Um, men are not the standard that women to fail to live up to. And that's really, really important, when you're, particularly when you're sort of thinking about business, because so many really well-meaning uh, ways of trying to address gender inequality involve trying to make women like men. So things like, um, you know, confidence workshops for women, because women aren't confident enough. You know, there's actually a lot of research to show that women, um, for example, ask for raises as often as men. They just are less likely to get them. We get penalised for it, in fact. Right, exactly. Um, yeah, so at the same time, women are being told be less assertive, but also be more assertive so that you can get the raise, which you're not going to get when you get asked for it, and you might get penalised for asking for it. Um, but actually, you know, while that's very admirable, you know, it's an attempt to try and make things better. It is still assuming that the way men are doing things is the right way. And why are we assuming that? Maybe men are asking for raises too much. And the reason I suggest that is because there's a fascinating little study which found that while women assess their intelligence accurately in general, um, men of average intelligence think that they're more intelligent than two thirds of people. Um, <laughs> which is adorable. But, but also, you know, perhaps we should have systems that are accounting for that rather than assuming the system is fine and the problem is the women. So that's the first thing. Don't assume that women are the problem. It could be that the system is the problem. The second thing is collect sex disaggregated data. If you don't do that, you're an idiot. The third thing <laughs> is uh, diversity not being a tick box. It's an integral, fundamental part of everything that you produce. And it's also an integral fundamental part of, of collecting the right amount of data, the right kind of data, um, and asking the right questions of that data. Because, you know, that's an important part of it too, is knowing what, you know, even knowing what the problem is and what data therefore you need to collect, collect in order to solve that problem. Men have different problems to women, different things that they want to fix, which is why you'll find female entrepreneurs creating, you know, <coughs> breast pumps and male entrepreneurs creating, I don't know, I don't know what the fuck male entrepreneurs are creating, nothing, probably. Um, no, I'm, that's just not true. Men have done great things in the past. Um, it's just the future is female. Um, anyway, so, uh, oh God, 33 seconds. Shit, I've lost my track of thought. Um, well, diversity, diversity, diversity not being, is not very being important. Not being a tick box. Not being a tick box. It is incredibly important. And, and I think that that is the big thing to change. And, and as I said, I think the way to change it is focusing on teams rather than star individuals. Because when you start looking at that, it, diversity just becomes obvious, I think. Well, I think those are all very good asks. I think that also I would just add to that that everybody here should see feminism or the equality agendas being something that's good for everyone and good for all of the organizations that you're working for. As I say, the organizations that don't have it are much, much weaker. Um, so to me, uh, I think we've basically just answered all of the questions in the world because we will make, <laughs> we will make a better future if we, if we actually are inclusive and diverse and we start notice, start seeing what has been in front of our faces for so long and people haven't seen. And so the final ask is, for, even though you've all got Caroline's book, do go out and get multiple copies. Make sure everybody you know reads it, okay? <laughs> Thanks very I much agree. indeed. <laughs>
And that's it. Thank you so much to Catherine and Caroline for such an exciting and knowledgeable discussion. Data is such an all-encompassing, pervasive part of life, and it's so incredibly important to consider how we might mitigate these real challenges of data bias. Make sure you tune in next week to the final episode of the Digital Agenda podcast, where we'll be hearing a discussion about technology and society. Digital technology is affecting many aspects of our social lives, but how can we mitigate its impact on mental health, personal development, and behavior? This panel discussion was chaired by Digital Agenda's Strategy Director, Rachel Neiman, and she is joined by Dr. Indra Joshi, who's the Head of Digital Health and AI at NHSX, Claire Levins, Policy Director at Internet Matters, Barry Panayi, Chief Data Officer at Lloyd's Banking Group, and finally, Umesh Pandya, Design and Product Director at 87%. We look forward to you joining us again next week for another episode of the Digital Agenda podcast. Bye.